can stress really have an effect on the heart? CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. Welcome back, everybody, to what is going to be the last planned episode for this series on heart attacks. I want to get into something that we haven't touched on yet, but is still vitally important when talking about heart and blood vessel disease, cardiovascular disease, and that is stress. It's just going to be me today. So to set things up, I want to give you two examples of patients I had coming to the emergency department. One, we're going to call Bonnie. She's a 60-year-old woman that came into the emergency department, the ED, via ambulance after an argument with her sister, a very heated argument. And during that, her chest started to hurt. The pain went up to her neck, down her arm, and it felt like a heart attack in the past. She's already had one. Another patient is an 80-year-old man that we'll call Clyde. He had his wife bring him to the emergency department, and he was having chest pain too. It doesn't move anywhere, but he gets short of breath with it, and it's happened before. He's also had a heart attack before. He's not sure if they feel similar or not. Also, he just found out that his son is in prison. So the question is, are these heart attacks? Neither of these people was even shoveling a driveway, so most people would say, nah. Can stress really have an effect on the heart? It's been said by some that stress isn't real or that it's all in your head. Frankly, the entirety of reality is our head, but more on that later. It's also been said that stress is harmful, dangerous, and we should all do everything we can to reduce it. Is that true? I'm going to make you wait until the end of the episode to find out what happens to Bonnie and Clyde. Between now and then, though, I'd like to delve into the questions of how much effect does stress have on the heart and blood vessels? How does it exert those effects? And how can we change things? So let's start with some data. About two-thirds of all visits into the medical system are related to anxiety, which I am clumping in with stress. Stress can accelerate aging through epigenetics. If you'd like more clarity on that topic, please go back one episode to Dr. Chowdhury. Soccer is dangerous to your health, but mainly if you're a spectator. That's right. Data gathered from people watching World Cup soccer, both men and women, showed a doubling of risk for heart attack from this beautiful game. Now, before you swear off soccer, there's no reason this wouldn't be the case in any other high-stakes game. Also, a reason not to worry is that this was only in people with pre-existing heart disease. Uh, but then again, this is America, whereas 75% of adults over 60 do indeed have some form of cardiovascular disease. So maybe the odds aren't in our favor. Interestingly, the lowest odds mentioned in various papers on this topic shows about a 50% increase risk 
and those with long-lasting chronic distress. Other papers have shown about a two and a half higher odds of a heart event after emotional upset. And if that upset is specifically a very angry outburst, then odds go up to nearly five times higher risk for heart attack. In another fun study, they looked at people with stable heart disease and tried to figure out if simply mental, aka non-physical, distress could cause real effects on the heart. You might wonder how they made sure that people were in enough anguish to stimulate distress. With everyone's greatest fear, public speaking. They had people give an impromptu speech in front of a crowd of four people, who probably gave them mean looks. And for some people, that was enough. They did stress tests on these people, seemingly right after they had twinges of chest pain from the speaking. Honestly, the methods in this paper should have been much more clearly explained. But their findings were quite interesting. Some of the participants really did have distress-related decreased blood flow to the heart, what's known as ischemia. They followed all these people for several years, and this distress-induced decreased blood flow group, the mentally-induced ischemia group, was at double the risk of a heart attack within that time. Hopefully that's convinced you that stress has something to do with cardiovascular health. But how? How could somebody's son going to jail or having their sibling in their face get to something producing tangible, consequential injury? Well, that is through the body's stress response. It relies on two major systems for that response, something called the SAM axis and the HPA axis. SAM is faster than the hippo-HPA, although hippos move faster than you'd expect. HPA can have more prolonged effects. SAM stands for sympathetic adrenomedullary, meaning the connection between the sympathetic nervous system, which we can call SNS, and the medulla section of the adrenal gland. The SNS is typically called our freeze-flight-or-fight system. It's part of the autonomic nervous system, which are the systems that are outside of our direct voluntary control. The SNS travels down our spinal cord and then out from there, attaching itself to all sorts of organs and parts. One of these parts is the adrenal gland, medulla, the intersection of the gland that sits on top of the kidney. Ad meaning on top, renal meaning kidney. And this releases chemicals like epinephrine and norepinephrine. SAM is for the initial phase of the classic stress response that gets you ready to survive. Dilating your pupils, feeding more blood to your muscles. The HPA axis comes later when the distress is chronic meaning at least several minutes to much longer, potentially. HPA axis consists of hypothalamus, pituitary, and the adrenal cortex. We talked about the adrenal gland already. The cortex just means outer layer. The hypothalamus and pituitary are adjacent structures at the base of the brain. To find it, if you want to, you can go straight back behind the bridge of your nose, and then where that intersects with the line that's just in front of your ears, that's about where it is. Now, this system releases a set of chemicals called glucocorticoids mainly, although other chemicals can become involved. We'll talk about some of that later. The most famous of these glucocorticoids is called cortisol. These systems will do things like increase blood sugar levels while decreasing insulin levels, increase insulin resistance, suppress some parts of the immune system while elevating other parts, elevate blood pressure, and can even augment cognition and alertness. If things are working right, this HPA axis can also tamp down on SAM. The overall mechanisms are a complicated mix that involve nerves, hormones, immune and metabolic pathways. If we want to talk about it simply from the viewpoint of blood vessel, whose job it is to feed the heart, a coronary artery, then much of this kind of stress response will increase inflammation 
and increase the chance of a blood clot. I'm going to replay a clip from the first episode in this series to reiterate how the heart attack occurs, and hopefully it makes the information that follows a bit more understandable. Mainly, I'm going to play the clip because I like it. Now, I'd like to take a moment and describe for you a poorly vetted analogy. I don't know my Star Wars very well, but I have seen most of it, and I think I'll try that general theme to explain how a heart attack happens. Star Wars is the one with Rick Moranis, right? I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. To set the scene, your body is the Empire, not the Rebellion. You have a giant, vital outpost known as the heart, and it's getting all of its food and supplies from somewhere else. You have a heavily fortified supply line. Ships, vehicles, troopers on all sides, all over the place, forming a sort of pipeline. It's so well protected that the pipeline is huge and there's plenty of food, water, and helmets that can pass through. All is well until rebels start attacking from the supply trucks themselves. They bust a hole in the main line of protection, known as the endothelium ships. These rebels have names like High Beck Pressure, Hans Smokemo, Chu Lestrol, and Dodona Diabetes. Chu Lestrol takes advantage of the break and busts in behind the endothelium line. Lots of your tanks come in through the pipeline to chase them down. These tanks are called white blood cells. They're so big they're knocking over all sorts of other fortifications while they chase the rebels around trying to destroy or capture them. Massive, friendly fire happens. But eventually, the rebels are dealt with. And the repairs can begin. That section that was destroyed is built back, but there's still wreckage. And it's just not as good as it once was. So, you also turn the area into a checkpoint. The new checkpoint and its size slow down the pipeline. Hopefully, no one on the outpost gets too hungry. They feel a lot of pain on heart when they don't get enough food. For extra protection, you start building a calcium force field over the area. Once it's covered, things should be good. But until then, there's a huge amount of combustible material. You get about halfway to protecting this tragically destroyed area, but then there's another attack. X, Y, and Z fighters come flying in and blow the force field. It causes a massive explosion that sends all sorts of stuff flying, and it crashes right into the outpost that was getting fed, crushing thousands of innocent stormtroopers and starving the rest. You've got to stop it! Is there any way to stop it? Now let's get into the weeds a little bit with the effects of stress. Essentially, in this coronary artery, you're going to end up with a more rigid, scarred vessel, with more white blood cells that are coming in to cause friendly fire. In fact, the bone marrow, which is where these white blood cells are getting made, gets triggered to make even more of them. And then the inner layer of this blood vessel, which is called the endothelium, will malfunction. It ends up narrower, leakier, and stickier, so the clots form more easily and plaques become less stable. At this point, you might be stressed out at the idea of leaving your house and simultaneously stressed out at the idea of never leaving your house. And that's what we call part one. See you next time. Just kidding. Part two is right here. Here's the good news. The debacle I just covered is the effect of the classic chronic distressed response. There are other possible responses, and we'll get into those. Also, there's a key part of the stress system that I forgot to mention. That key is what decides whether we start the cascade of the stress response to begin with. And it's known as our brain. The brain takes in signals for potential threats, and through various parts, including the thalamus, which is like the switchboard operator, 
and the amygdala, which is like the almond-sized smoke alarm that loves to go off, even if it's not a real fire and just some burnt popcorn, it will process those signals to determine whether or not to initiate a stress response and what kind. With practice, you could increase the role of the frontal lobe part of the brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex, that have always been part of the stress system. They're ready to stay in control whether that stress is needed or not and help determine whether that stress is needed or not. The problem, though, is that when the stress response gets too hot, the influence of these areas is lessened. It's like Sam and the hippo HPA just bully these areas of the brain and tell it to shut up. They're such meanies. However, the frontal lobe can hit the gym and learn Aikido and re-exert its rightful influence. In fact, our minds can help trigger the parasympathetic response, and that is the yin to the yang of the sympathetic nervous system. It's often known as the rest and digest response. There's a set of nerves mainly coming from the brainstem, which if you want to find it, is located just deeper than the deepest parts of your ear. So be very careful with Q-tips. Now part of this realization that there can be different ways to have a stress response is that the stress response didn't evolve to be bad. It evolved to make us better able to meet challenges. There was an acronym in the strength episode that makes sense here as well. SAID, Specific Adaptations to Imposed Demands. Stress responses can help us improve. They can focus attention, increase awareness, motivation, energy. They can encourage us to form social bonds, increase our courage, decrease our fear. They can also help us process experiences, help our brains learn, grow. Our response to stress is trying to accomplish a few things. A, coordinate the resources we have, a process known as allostasis. B, understand the context of what's happening and what information is relevant. C, regulate our physiology and behavior for the task at hand. Let me tell you about some of the stress response varieties that we can have. When something surprisingly stressful has occurred, there can be a short instantaneous freeze that happens, a moment of assessment. Next, there's typically an attempt at a tend and befriend response. Yes, even in men. This is an attempt for forging or using relationships. These are usually scenarios where there would be safety in numbers, emotional distress, the need for cooperation, or where someone you care about is at risk. The key player in this response is oxytocin, which is made in the hypothalamus but released by the pituitary gland. This is the hormone sometimes called the love hormone, and it can heal the heart, literally. There are multiple mechanisms for this, but it seems that some of the main ones involved include changing program cell death, increased blood vessel formation to scarred areas, decreasing those friendly fire white blood cells, and increasing remodeling. Now, if this tendon befriend attempt fails or is useless, we'll move on. At that point, we can have either the classic fight or flight response or what's known as a challenge response. Depending on the stimulus, we're going to decide that either the stimulus is something that outstrips our resources or doesn't. If it seems to outstrip our resources, be too much for us, it's known as a threat response and we'll be on full ready to flee or fight. However, if we deem ourselves to have the resources, we get a related but different response known as the challenge response. The main difference in the challenge response is that there's more focus than fear and the ratio of stress hormones change. You get more SAM and less HPA. The challenge response is performance enhancing and can lead to growth and learning. 
We'll talk more about that split soon. The last typical stress response when all else fails is collapse. That's the checked out, shut down, it's all over, try to hide response. People in this state will be withdrawn, depressed, and kind of lower heart rates and lower muscle tone. Think of a possum playing dead. Now back to challenge versus threat response. This harkens back to when I said we can exert influence on our stress response. There was a study that tried to figure out if there was some relationship between how people perceive stress, their actual stress loads, and their health outcomes. What do you think they found? Survival was lowest in the group that had loads of stress and thought that stress was harmful. But survival was highest in those that had loads of stress, yet thought that stress was not harmful. Just recently, there was a study looking at first responders and their stress mindset. It seems that while overall stress levels didn't make a difference, their mindset about that stress did. Those with a negative outlook on stress had nearly three times the odds of having something like high blood pressure or high cholesterol. These are important risk factors for a heart attack. Could it be that what we think about something can change what's happening in our bodies and cause actual changes in health? It sure looks that way. How we perceive things changes our physiology. And that's been shown repeatedly by those that study mindset, like the now famous Stanford psychologist, Aliyah Crum. If you're someone that's been reading the CPR newsletter, maybe you'll remember way back when, when we talked about her milkshake study. Essentially, people had different levels of a hunger hormone known as ghrelin based on whether they drank a high calorie shake versus a low calorie shake. People were compared against themselves drinking the shake on two different days. When they had a high calorie shake, they got full more quickly and their hunger hormones re reflected that. But it was a lie. And the two shakes were the exact same shake. The only difference is what the participants thought they were eating. Does the same thing apply to stress? How about with the actual hormone levels in the bloodstream? So here's another interesting study where they took people and split them into two groups. One group got a nice little video on the wonderful effects of stress. Stress is helpful. It tried to give them a positive mindset on stress. The other group got the opposite, a video to try and instill a negative outlook on stress. Then they got put into stressful situations. Again, the most stressful situation that you can do to humans, apparently, at least that can be approved for research, is having them speak publicly. So that's what they did. They put them into public speaking scenarios, and then each group was further divided into two groups. One that when they spoke got complimented, and the other when they spoke got critiqued harshly. They were trying to figure out, well, does a positive mindset on stress, despite what actual results are, lead to a higher growth index. What is a growth index? A growth index is a ratio of hormones, DHEA, to cortisol. Cortisol is part of the stress response. DHEA is part of the stress response, but it can do helpful things when in the right ratio, like improve memory and maybe even lower heart disease risk. So what'd they find? People who are having a more positive stress mindset, even when they failed, ended up having a higher growth index they had more helpful levels of DHEA. As a side note, this does not mean it's safe to go find some DHEA and start supplementing on your own, because this is also something that, that can cause high cholesterol, medication interactions, bone thickening, excess estrogen, and other things. Your body will figure out what to do when given the right resources, usually. Also, DHEA is not the same thing as DHA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid. Now, there are terms out there on the kinds of stress that people experience. Maybe you've heard them. Eustress and distress. They're thought of as the 
good kinds of stressors versus the bad kinds. But I think these terms can mislead people because it's not the stressor or the stimulus that makes you stress or distress. It's our response to them. Did we grow and benefit from it? Or did the opposite happen? Exercise is often thought of as a stress, but if I go run on a broken leg, there will be distress. I do not have resources for that. Now, maybe you're still wondering about Bonnie and Clyde from earlier. So here's what happened. After working them up, I found that yes, Bonnie did indeed have a heart attack. She got admitted to the hospital, saw the cardiologist, had some more diagnostic testing, but was able to get discharged fairly soon without much change in her function. Clyde, on the other hand, did not have a heart attack. He was able to go home and see his heart doctor in a follow-up appointment. Turns out, every time Clyde has any kind of stressful experience, he felt the same way. Now, stress is an everyday part of life, and we can't control what's going to happen to us. Not all the time, anyway. So if you're one of these people, what would your next steps be? Clearly, their stress management isn't working well. And if you're not yet one of these people, how can you keep yourself from ending up in the emergency department? The insight that's going to come into play here is that you don't know reality, and neither do I. Nobody does. Our reality is a reflection of our perception of reality, our thoughts about reality, and we can take advantage of that. To me, here are the key steps for managing stress better. There are others. Here are just a few keys. One, change your stress mindset. When you encounter a stressor, remember that you have the resources to deal with the situation. When you feel Sam making changes in you, like making your heart race, realize that, in fact, your body is giving you more physical and mental resources so that you can respond better. Two, practice. Put yourself into either simulated or real situations and try to create your desired response. Additionally, practice something else. Practice the pause. As Viktor Frankl said it, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I've shortened that to the pause. Number three, realize that your consciousness or your mind is a combination of brain and body. There are not two separate entities fighting over a home. You are a single unit. Help your brain and you help yourself. Help your body and you help yourself. Use that knowledge to buffer stress by taking deep breaths, building strong relationships, improving your sleep, eating well, getting into nature, and having fun. Something I practice that seems to help all these steps is mindfulness. It's the process of acknowledging reality without judgment and with compassion. It can make significant improvements in physical quality of life, mental quality of life, anxiety, depression, blood pressure. It can decrease sympathetic tone, increase parasympathetic response. It can literally improve the size and function of the parts of the brain that are involved in planning, execution, memory, emotional regulation, while shrinking smoke alarm areas like the amygdala. If you're ready to try it, go to cprhealthclinic.com stress. That's it for today's topic on stress. And that's it for the heart attack series. The idea is to be back next year with a different disease focus and how lifestyle can make a difference there. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this series, what you liked, what you didn't like. So email me at contact at cprhealthclinic.com. It would also be really helpful if you would leave a five-star review wherever it is that you're hearing this from. Thanks for listening to this series. Remember, the way you live can save your life.